This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. My guest on this episode is Dr. Marsha Yonemoto, professor of history and director of the graduate teacher program at the University of Colorado Boulder. Her latest publication is The Problem of Women in Early Modern Japan, published by University of California Press in 2016. Dr. Yonemoto, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Your most recent publication is about early modern Japan, and your previous work was on mapping early modern Japan. So most of your research is from this early modern period. So what is the view of the Meiji Restoration when we look at it perhaps 200 years earlier? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, in preparing for this, I thought, well, I don't really have all that much to say about teaching Meiji because I don't teach Meiji per se all that much anymore, except in our big intro class where you spend, you know, 30 minutes on the Meiji Restoration. Um, I used to teach um, the upper division modern Japan class where we would spend comparatively, uh, you know, more time uh, on Meiji, but I don't teach that anymore now that I have two colleagues who are trained as modernists, so they teach the modern class and I um, teach the earlier, uh, the earlier classes. But I guess, so there's two things I guess I would say about teaching Meiji. One is that when I used to teach the modern class, and to a certain degree still when I come at it from um, the early modern perspective, because I do teach uh, an upper division class on um, early modern Japan, 1590 to 1868-ish, um, I, I always emphasized continuities. Um, and of course, because the a tendency is to break Japan's history right at that moment of restoration, and that's, of course, there are divide between early modern and modern. Um, is, is equivalent to the divide, is, is you know the same as the divide between Tokugawa and Meiji. So one thing I used to do um, is uh, is to uh, you know talk about the dynamics of the Meiji Restoration, the political history, terribly confusing political history, the factions, the you know the 1850s, 1860s, the Restoration itself, and then to look at the Charter Oath. And to, to look at the Charter Oath as a, as a document that when we just read it, especially in translation, looks very decisive, you know, very forward-looking, um, very much a break with the past, but then to sort of walk students through it and, um, and, and really talk about how many embedded assumptions there are in the Charter Oath that, 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 are, that really make it as much a document of the Tokugawa period as it is of the Meiji period. So, you know, you start with, um, you know, all matters will be subject to public discussion. Well, what does public mean? You know, and that public for the drafters of the Charter Oath did not mean what you and I think of as a public, sure. which is the, the, you know, the society at large, which of course a word that didn't exist right, in the Tokugawa period, society. And, and to, to say, well, public for them meant, uh, meant the oyake, meant the, the authorities, meant, uh, meant an elite. So public discussion meant discussion among people who were qualified to discuss weighty issues, which meant the elite. Um, and so to, to kind of, you know, just take it apart piece by piece and to show that this document, because students will say, oh, public, well, it's a dem democratic. They're right. clearly moving in right. the, no, the, nah. <laughs> they did not. They were very suspicious of democracy for a very long time. <laughs> and um, so you can kind of uh, get a lot out of this really short document by sort of systematically uh, going through it. And so we would talk about, you know, go article by article and talking about, for example, the sending of embassies, you know, seeking knowledge throughout the world. What does that mean? Who did they send? Um, where did they go? How did they seek information? What kind of information were they seeking? And this was a way to bring in uh, all different sorts of ideas and, and to talk about uh, what, what sorts of institutions and ideas Meiji 
the Meiji oligarchs were, were looking at and were most interested in uh, in terms of their, their influence, potential influence on Japan. The Meiji oligarchs themselves, of course, are the greatest continuity um, between the Tokugawa and the Meiji, and so you can talk about these low-ranking samurai and how they transform themselves into Meiji statesmen and give themselves new titles and new clothing and new haircuts and chest full of medals, and, but they're samurai, you know, and, uh, and those people in power, the, the Gendro, you know, the last one doesn't die until, what, the 1920s or late teens, um, and their hold on government, on the highest positions in government, and really on the whole Meiji philosophy of governance was so strong. And all of their assumptions, of course, are samurai assumptions. They're assumptions of the elite class of the Tokugawa period. And as modern as they became, they still were Tokugawa men uh, as much as they were men of Meiji. So I did a lot. Um, I tend to do a lot with those uh, with those continuities. And of course, the, the continuities are even stronger when you get to things like education. You know, so the education system, the Meiji education system, was enabled by the Tokugawa education system. So when the Meiji government says you've got to set up schools, they turn it over to the prefectures, and the prefectures depend on the educational infrastructure from the Tokugawa period, uh, essentially not literally, but on the tradition of local education, the tradition of commoner education, on the, on the uh, importance of education generally um, in a society that had, as we know, probably quite high very difficult to measure, but quite high literacy rate for a pre-industrial society. So, so I try to go through and, and emphasize all the legacies of Tokugawa mm -hmm. in the Meiji. And then, of course, students will still turn around and say, yeah, in Meiji they became modern and they turned their backs on everything <laughs> yeah. before that. And, uh, you know, Westerners came in and, right. you know, after the races. And I keep saying, bah, 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 you know, <laughs> didn't we, didn't they, you know, and, and, and all the, the, uh, the things that... Um, were so important from the previous 250 years, you know, that, that made all those changes possible. But since you brought up the, the Charter Oath, the, the one that, I, I do a very similar mm -hmm. exercise when, when I introduce it, and uh, the one that, that I always come back to, I think it's uh, Article 2 or 3, but uh, the article that says, evil customs of the past yes. will be torn asunder uh -huh, uh -huh. so that we can actually move forward. And there seems to be, I mean, we could talk about the continuities, but there does seem to be at least a, an epistemological break. Mm -hmm. right? And say we, we have to create a, a break between the past and the future so that we can maybe embellish all of the bad things that happened before to erect this imagined past that's much worse so that we can progress forward. I think it uh, comes up in your most recent book too, mm. right? Talking about the problem of women, well, from the Meiji perspective, the Tokugawa period looked like this almost dark valley of, of women's rights, but mm -hmm. it, as you're saying, it's a much more complicated story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it is really interesting, and, the, and the, the evil customs of the past was, of course, to a considerable degree, not only, but a, a rhetorical um, move. But then there were a lot of obviously things like the persecution of Buddhism yeah. and 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 things that really were and the the crackdown on um, prostitution, concubinage. But of course, all the high Meiji men can <laughs> retain their concubines and their mistresses, you know, well after <laughs> well after they were outlawed for everybody else. Um, that was that was clearly uh, uh, not the case. But um, but yeah, the 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 notion that we must start anew and that, of course, is felt 
that idea is felt most significantly probably in the in the in the arts and literature, mm. where you turn away from the quote unquote frivolous literature of the decadent literature of the Tokugawa period, and we mm. move into the novel, you know, the, the serious novel form, and um, and you know, arts, right? We we turn away from the the um, the ukiyo-e, and we move towards either new forms of that, or we move towards oil painting, or we move towards um, different forms and different different forms of, of artistic expression and different subjects of of artistic, or, or quote unquote, high art or real art. So yeah, there's definitely there's there's definitely that move, but uh, it does obscure and you know, it does obscure a lot, which is some of the things I'm trying to get at in the in the book to look at. Uh, not so much what women were said to have done or how women were were, were supposed to behave as defined in sort of normative um, texts on women's behavior, but women what women actually did and how much leeway was really allowed um, for women to act, which isn't the same just you know as saying they had agency or they had power, but they had latitude to act in many cases with a considerable considerable degree of autonomy even within the official strictures within the official discourse on women's behavior mm-hmm. so that, so that we need to kind of uh, you know look again at those at those strictures but if you look i mean it, it's very interesting to look to even progressive women writers in the in the in the meiji period if you look at the biography of um, ishimoto shizue or someone like this who uh, in the very beginning of her memoirs, um, Facing Two Ways, uh, talks about how she's given a copy of the Onna Daigaku by her beloved grandfather, I think, and that this is loathsome to her um, and uh, as terrible, represents everything that held women down. And, and that's a common sentiment, but that then obscures you know, the ways in which Onna Daigaku might have been or, or any, you know, it was only one of many, many texts um, for women and how those texts were actually read and, and, what, and what messages they conveyed to women about, you know, possibility as well as about country. Diaries, memoirs, letters, and autobiographies, and we're starting in Meiji, so we're we're only a few weeks in. Uh, but we've read so far the Journal of Francis Hall, Clara Whitney's diary. Um, next week we're reading uh, Tsudaume's uh, The Attic Letters, and then we read Fukuzawa's autobiography, uh, and then we move into the early 20th century, and then you know wartime stuff. And also it's it's Japan and Japanese America, so we're dealing with um, incarceration, Japanese American incarceration, and um, those accounts. But I've been struck. The diaries are a wonderful way to look at the Meiji period. And if you look at, uh, you know, these Americans who are in Japan, Francis Hall was there very early, 1859 to 1866. Clara Whitney's diary covers the 70s and into the early 80s. And then uh, Tsudome comes back in 1881 and writes, I mean, the volume of, of the volume that the, uh, of the diary entries, the amount of text people felt compelled to record, um, in, in Suda's case, the letters to her American mother, are extraordinary. And then, of course, Fukuzawa, the great man, you know, the great man's autobiography. But he's and they all knew each other, so you see them overlapping. Uh, you know, Whitney, Clara Whitney knew Fukuzawa. Uh, Hall met Fukuzawa. You know, they all all these same characters keep popping up. Hepburn, various missionaries. You know, of course, all these 
various old regime people, the you know, descendants of the Tokugawa, a bunch of Matsudaidas running around, um, all of whom Clara Whitney knew, entertained at her house, uh, had Tokugawa, I guess it was Tokugawa Iesato, right? Um, wearing a pink baby's bonnet and playing parlor games. You know, it's, it's extraordinary. And, and not only for the, 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 the sides of these important people that you don't see otherwise, but just for creating a kind of, um, especially with the Meiji diaries, this prosopographical, you know, uh, multi-perspectival multi uh, view of, uh, of what is going on in this period. And, and, and you really get an appreciation for the, 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 on the one hand, the rapidity of the change, and on the other hand, the, the degree to which you know, many people were living lives that they had lived previously. You know, if you look at the servants or the, you know, the, the, the life uh, to, to the degree that you can glimpse it of common people, you know, still kind of doing the things that they were doing um, before the government changed, but with different laws and different, you know, in a different context. So, so they're, they're, they're really interesting and I think useful sources to read in concert and you can kind of overlap them and uh, see how, you know, somebody like Francis Hall would view the same people very differently from, you know, 15-year-old Clara Whitney as a, and then, of course, as opposed to Fuguzawa looking at the end of his life back on his, um, his life and his accomplishments. Historians sometimes have a tendency to fetishize certain dates, and Meiji Restoration 1868 certainly is, is one of those. But we also try to problematize those dates, too. So is 1868 a meaningful date? Hmm. And is it something that we should be commemorating? That's interesting. Um... Yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, <laughs> it was the. I mean, it did mark the formal end of a of a remarkably stable regime, a regime that well, I should say, a remarkably durable regime that was remarkably durable because it was not entirely stable and not and 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 not a, uh, in many ways a very weak state, and that was a significant moment. And now you know, all the things we've been talking about, continuities and continuity and personnel, continuity, you know, when they write the charter out, they really have no idea what they're doing. Um, and, and there's all sorts of proposals, you know, we might just revamp the shogunate, you know, we might just, you know, do a lot of things that didn't end up uh, happening. Um, but, but still, it is, it is a moment of, uh, of great significance for all the reasons we've been talking about, that even if there were um, you know, there were significant continuities from Tokugawa to the Meiji. The idea was that this is all about change and that this is all about uh, something new. What that new thing is, we don't quite know, but this is a big, this is a momentous uh, a thing. I mean, generations of, uh, you know, ruling elites had come to think that the, the situation that had pertained, which is to say the shogunate, was never going to change, you know, and, and why should they have thought so? You know, uh, in, in no one's living memory <laughs> had, had things ever been any different. Um, although, of course, you know, change within that structure, but, but it was almost, I don't think, obviously change was not unthinkable, um, but, uh, it, it, but it was, it was uh, this system that had become quite entrenched and the whole set of political norms um, had also become entrenched. So, so what happened in, what, you know, what, what 1868, maybe that date itself, you know, refers only to the event of overthrowing the shogunate, but then, of course, everything that it came to mean was hugely transformative. So, yeah. 
one one of the narrative strands that I use in my class uh, to to cover basically all Japanese history is what I call rupture and revolution. Mm. Uh, maybe making a bit too much of these moments of historical rupture, but re-emphasizing that there are a number of significant moments in Japanese history where there is a literal tearing asunder of the of the existing political structure and a complete transformation uh, in years that followed, 1945, mm. mm-hmm. 1868, 1600, all the way back, you know, 1185, 645. Mm. I noticed that you you said your early modern class goes from 1590. Yeah. Uh-huh. So why that date? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I actually, I mean, that's pretty arbitrary. And 1590... I, the reason I choose it, I guess the reason that a lot of um, early modernists choose it as the, the moment to mark the beginning of the early modern period is because it, it, it's the period in which Hideyoshi pretty much solidifies his control over um, a reunified Japan. But, I, I mean, one thing that's interesting about that date is I, I, I use it, the first thing I do is walk into class and say, 1590, <laughs> you know, I could have chosen any number of dates, you know, to mark the beginning of, um, you know, 1568, you know, uh, Nobunaga's invasion of Kyoto, or 1573, or, uh, or uh, 1590, or 1603. Um, one could choose any one of these dates, uh, and that's kind of the interesting thing about early modernity, is what do we really mean? Is it a political definition? Is it a, a, a you know, is it an economic definition? Which point you want to scrap any of those dates and start somewhat later? Um, is it a state of mind? Is it, you know, all these different things. So it's a way of just starting a conversation. Well, I, I assumed it had something to do with Hideyoshi. And, and of course, particularly because of Dr. Barry's work, you know, we think of Hideyoshi as the first early modern ruler. But then, you know, even some of the things that Hideyoshi implemented, he carried on from Oda Nobunaga. And oh, so, sure, yeah. so there's this kind of standard narrative that Nobunaga is the last of the Sengoku daimyo. Hideyoshi is mm. the first of the Kinsei daimyo. I, I mean, I was mm. curious what you... Yeah. Yeah, I, and that's another interesting thing is I, I, you know, you talk about the unifiers as a three-person mm-hmm. unit, and they are this kind of triumvirate. Um, so, yeah, there's an argument to be made that Nobunaga was a, a man of the... Sengoku period, uh, or was a medieval mm-hmm. ruler, and that they, you know, there was this somehow, you know, march towards the more administrative, early modern mentality. Mm-hmm. But they were all Sengoku daimyo, <laughs> let's face it, right? Even Ieyasu um, was obviously not even. I mean, he was. Uh, they were all contemporaries. Um, they happened to succeed each other because of the way that alliances worked out, um, and treachery, and all sorts of other things. Um, but they all had elements of medieval warlord and elements of early modern administrator. And you can see that as early on. You can see that in Nobunaga with the, the uh, land surveys and the market reforms and things like that. Um, he didn't live long enough to, um, maybe it was the medieval part, <laughs> he didn't get assassinated, but um, he didn't live long enough to, to pursue those administrative uh, changes to the degree that we, we just don't know, you know, to what they would have been. So I think they, they all were a blend of that, and, you know, circumstances made it such that Ieyasu was able to achieve the fullest realization um, of a new kind of state. And there definitely does seem to be this kind of revolutionary reordering, not on the end of 150 years of constant civil war, mm-hmm. removal of samurai from the land, put them into cities, the growth of cities. And a lot of the things that 
the kind of markers of the early modern period in some ways are started by Oda Nobunaga. So maybe we could include, push that date even further back from 1590, like you were saying, 1568 maybe? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, you can, you know, you can move things around um, in many of those ways. And, and you know, the resort to, the, of course, the, the, the hallmark of warring states politics and, and what sort of warring states mentality was the re resorting to, to private vengeance, right? And, and um, redress, self-redress uh, of, of disputes. And that, of course, was something that the Tokugawa regime eventually cracked down on and, and really eliminated from the range of possibilities of the samurai. It was one of the most revolutionary things about their rule. But still, you know, Ieyasu resorted to violence quite frequently on a small scale and large scale, so he, even he was not, you know, w w the, uh, he, he clearly had to use uh, the tactics of war to... So the, the term early modern itself, I mean, is somewhat problematic too, right? Uh, you know, we could say 1868 Meiji, is this a useful category? Is mm -hmm. early modern a useful designation? Oh, yeah, we can go go around about that. Um, and in part, it's, you know, the translation of the Japanese term, which in turn comes from, you know, Western period, a, 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 an adaptation of Western peri periodization of, of historical uh, eras um, and the, Marx and the sort of Marxist um, notions of development. But is it a useful, is it a, is it a useful category? It's, it is and it isn't. I mean, you know, when I say to audience and when I, when I give a talk or whatever to audiences that are largely non-Asianist or, mm. or, or have a lot, I say I'm early modern in Japan, that means, right, right. you know, sort of turn of the 17th century to the mid-19th century, much later than early modern right. in Europe, which goes all the way back to, you know, the 15th century right. um, and, um, you know, the Renaissance. And, and then, of course, in China, you know, uh, for Chinese historians, modern started in the Song you know, in, in the 12th century, which everyone else laughs at, but the Chinese historians never laugh at. Um, so I don't know that it's any more or less helpful than any other translation that we might that we might end up with. Otherwise, you're stuck with um, a set of political, essentially a political history, right? Um, this ruling dynasty, that ruling dynasty, which um, isn't any more historically explanatory than mm -hmm. the labels that we attach to it. But I mean, insofar as they are sort of um, generated from a, a Western vocabulary and they, they carry with them all sorts of assumptions about um, changing attitudes towards the past. Of course, that's the, that's the early modern definition and, you know, deriving from the, the Western European tradition is that, you know, they began to look at the ancient past as history and began to sort of utilize um, the, the, the techniques of the ancients to dissect the immediate and the distant and the distant past, right? So it's part of it anyway. Um, so that, that mentality, um, not only towards uh, an attitude towards the future, but an ad toward, attitude towards one's own past um, is definitive of the early modern age, supposedly, and you can make that argument for the Tokugawa, um, and for previous <laughs> regimes too, you know, but, but, but yeah, the, the, um, the focus. So it, it, I think it's useful, I guess I would, in the end, I would come down to say that it's a useful term in that it raises questions and it allows you to talk about and debate these issues that are, that are not definitively, you know, sealed, done. Mm -hmm. I mean, we use this terminology, but we can we can uh, continually remind people that it's problematic and that it's not um, definitive. 
um, that it's not entirely uh, descriptive, right. but that it, it denotes a whole way of thinking, and we can sort of engage them in what that way of thinking is. It, it seems like in, in the Western historiography, a lot of the works that define the term early modern, it was always with an eye towards modernity later, and so mm -hmm. identifying the antecedents of modernity mm -hmm. in the Tokugawa period, you know. So in that case, people said it's a problematic term because it's teleological, it, mm -hmm. it just supports modernization theory. I mean, would you say there's other things we can glean about Japan that make the term useful? Yeah. Um, well, I think if you look at it, for, again, from the other end, from the medieval medieval mm -hmm. to early modern transition, I mean, there's, there's certain things about the early modern that are profoundly different mm -hmm. um, than you know, than they were in the medieval period. I mean, for, for one thing, uh, uh, print culture, literacy, uh, urban life, I mean, all you could just tick them off, right? Um, and it's not that cities were unknown in the medieval period. It's not that, you know, that the that, that, uh, sort of circulation of, of, of printed or manuscript material was, was unknown. Obviously, that's not true. But the scale in the early modern period is very different. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, Beth Berry can talk about this better than anybody else. But the 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 scale of um, the production and the dissemination of information and culture and the standardization of cultural norms. Not that everybody, but you know, obviously, regional difference was you know enormous. It remained enormous to the end of the Tokugawa period. But that there was a. a at least among the educated, a kind of common conversation that was already happening, um, or or the spread of information and circulation of information to a degree that, especially by the you know the early nineteenth century, was unknown, um, you know, um, and at, at a scale and of a type that was that was really not ever seen in Japan before. So so I think there is something about marking off the early modern as this period that is. Uh, yeah, for in, in in some ways seem to be not yet modern, uh, and therefore kind of deficient in a lot of ways or preparatory to the modern, but also fundamentally different from the medieval world. Um, if we want to generalize about the medieval world, which I suppose gets us into another discussion, but 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 yeah, so I do think it's 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 useful for that reason. And you're talking about the spread of information. Is this the beginning of a, a nascent national consciousness? I don't use. I'm very careful, in the first book in particular, which was about maps of Japan, right. not to use the language of nation. Mm -hmm. Because I think that that's a concept, well, of course, the language of nation itself doesn't appear until the Meiji period, and, sure. and the notion of Japan as a nation, qua nation, you know, comparable to other nations in the world, it's very, it's very late in coming. And Japan, not just in Japan, everywhere, really. Um, the, the you know, the invention of tradition stuff uh, is, is as applicable to, Br to Britain as it is to Japan, and it's a 19th century story. Mm -hmm. But what I think you see happening in the Tokugawa period is a consciousness that sort of develops first on the margins in those few areas where contact with non-Japanese was frequent, so Nagasaki, uh, the far northeast, uh, a consciousness of difference uh, between us being the Japanese and those people, whoever those people were, whether they were Ainu or Yukuans or Russians or Chinese, a sense of, uh, of difference, but that is not yet coalesced into that notion of Japanese 
I am Japanese and I am the same Japanese in the same way as everybody else in Japan is. It's a, it's it's an it's an us and them um, kind of notion, which is very different from. I mean, if you buy the Benedict Anderson notion of the nation, right? Where where I'm reading a newspaper here and I have a faith that somebody reading newspaper, you know, a thousand miles away. Um, depending on how big your country is, you know, very far away is also going to have the same notion of being a people right. as I do, right? You can't, you just don't have that in the, in the in the Tokugawa period. You don't have that consciousness of similarity. You have it among a certain class of people, I suspect, um, and uh, among people of a certain class and status, but you don't have it in the, the widespread way that you need to have uh, that kind of consciousness um, really permeating a significant sector of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I think I think that for me that because of that rather strict notion of nation, um, the, the language of nation doesn't really work for me until the very, very end of the Tokugawa period, well, the 1850s, essentially, I think. 18, uh, I think Beth would, dis- Beth would disagree, so she'll have a different uh, opinion uh, about that. But, but I've been always been a little bit conscious of that language and that concept, because I do think it is so very modern. Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.